championship series isn't very close, hypothetically speaking. Like when one team you know, uh, sweeps the other uh, four in a row, it, it isn't all that exciting compared to a game, that, you know, a series that goes to the you know, game seven and it's, it's close right down to the end. That, that's more uh, theatrical. That's, that is much more uh, gripping and entertaining. But I'll say, if you just really wanted to show that you were just the dominant force, you know, what you could really do is, if you were in a championship series, you could let yourself uh, get three games behind on purpose. Just let them have the first three games and then decide, okay, now we are going to kick in gear and we're just going to take you for the next four games in a row. Right now in the book of Exodus, God is, is down, he's three games down. People of Israel have been in slavery, his people in slavery for 400 years to the Egyptians. Moses has fled from uh, Egypt and he's returning now, but Pharaoh will not listen to him. In fact, uh, Pharaoh is upset and Moses' first attempt made things worse for God's people. Pharaoh reacted by saying, I, I'm not going to let them go. Instead, now they can, they can make their, these lazy Hebrews, they can make their bricks the same amount and they can collect their own straw. So have fun doing that at night, but you better still get the bricks done or we're going to beat you. To the point where it's even turned uh, the Hebrews against Moses. So right now, it's down three games but now in, in these chapters, we get, to, we get to game four. And we get to see what is going to begin here. Today, we're, like I said, we're going to cover Exodus chapters 7 through 10 on the first nine plagues. This is a lot of scripture. And we cannot read each verse out loud. We will read a lot of this because the Bible is God's living and active word. Uh, but I timed myself to see how long it would take to read it all out loud. It takes about 20 minutes, which isn't that bad if you're doing it at home. So if you haven't, I encourage you, read the whole thing and you'll get all of the details. Uh, but if we did that right now, that would take up almost all of our time. But we will read quite a bit of it. Also, this, uh, this, does not, uh, this message does not make for a nice little three-point outline or two-point outline. So we're going to go through the nine plagues. We're going to do that. And we are going to draw out, I think I have five different life applications, ways this applies to us, lessons, why this matters. And we'll do this uh, kind of interspersed. But before we get to that, I was going to have this at the end, but I think this is helpful to do this at the beginning. Because we look at these nine plagues, these are the first nine plagues, which means there's, there's one more coming, the tenth. We'll hit that next week. And, okay, spoiler, that's the one that actually does the trick. And God knows that already. He's even revealed that already. So you might think, why does he even bother with these first nine plagues? Why not just cut to the chase, go right to, to plague number 10, make that the first one, and get it over with? And there's, there's a few reasons that we could think of. He is giving Pharaoh many times uh, to repent, many times that he could obey, showing his, his patience as he's going through this, you know, plague after plague, it, we're going to see also he is showing his uh, dominance over the, the false gods of Egypt. But at the core, we don't have to guess 
what God is doing, because God tells us repeatedly what he is doing through this. So I'm going to give you six scripture passages, and if you want, you can maybe just at least write down the references and see what is similar about all of these. I think this is good to look at the beginning just so we're not missing the main point of what God is doing. Uh, these are great passages to talk about. I mean, these are full octane, fun, you know, you know plagues and you know, frogs and boils and hail. Uh, but this is what God is doing. Exodus 7, 5, he says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus seven seventeen. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and turn it into blood. So we see here, he's, he's saying, part of this is that you're going to know, you are going to know that I am the Lord. I'm revealing to you who I am. People haven't known him as, as, as the Lord, as the I am. I'm going to make this clear. At one point, Pharaoh had said, I don't know the Lord. Who is this? And God is saying, I'm going to make you know. You are going to find out who I am. I think there's a side point there too. There's a lot of people that would rather just kind of dismiss God, push him away from their thoughts, and not want to know the Lord at all. You're, you're going to know him one way or another. You're going to know him as, as your Savior in the saving relationship, but, but one day or another you're going to stand before the Lord. And you want to stand before him as someone that's saved and adopted into his family, one of his people having trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, not as someone like Pharaoh that, that gets to know him in, in judgment. But everyone's going to know the Lord one way or another. 8.10, he, he says with one of the plagues, so that you will know that there is no one like our God. 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So not only is he the Lord, that there is none like him. There, he is the only God. He is not one of all kinds of other equal gods. He is not one of a group. He is the only one. There's nothing else that compares to him. And he wants Egyptians, and he wants everyone reading this book until, uh, for, for the rest of time to know that that is the truth. And he wants it to be proclaimed to the world, to future generations. The next two verses, talking about Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this purpose. I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then in chapter 10, he says that I might show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell them in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons. He wants this passed down. So that's what we're doing here today. We're continuing to pass it down. I hope you are passing it down to your children and grandsons. They need to know who the Lord is. So let's dive into this and take a look at the, at the plagues. And the first we have is an initial sign that's even before the plagues. This kind of preliminary sign. It's not really a plague yet. Kind of a warning shot. <clears throat> Read chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, saying, I'm going to speak through you and then through Aaron as your spokesman. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. That's where we know that Moses is that age. Which, by the way, if you think you are too old to serve the Lord, concentrate on that verse. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, this is interesting, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this isn't even one of the plagues yet. It's kind of a uh, preliminary sign. Uh, If if, uh, Pharaoh would have listened here, then he could have spared himself all the grief of all these plagues, but he doesn't. Instead, you see Pharaoh's, uh, the magicians coming out, and they say, well, we can do the same thing. You know, uh, Aaron, he he turned uh, Moses' staff into a snake, well, we can do that. And somehow they did. At the very least, they made it convincingly look like they did. Now, there could be different explanations for what's going on. Uh, one could be that maybe through demonic powers that this actually happened and they actually turned their staves into to snakes. That Satan is real. It might be a possibility. Uh, we don't know. It doesn't really specifically tell us. Uh, the word for secret arts can also be translated trickery. So it could be the case that it was some kind of, um, some kind of illusion, some kind of magic trick that they, that they did. I uh, heard it speculated you know, that maybe there were even certain types of snakes where you could press a certain pressure point and they would get stiff. And you know, if you didn't give people a good look, you know, maybe they think it's a staff and then you could throw it down and then it becomes a... Uh, a snake, but it was a snake the whole time. Um, I've heard people that have, have written on that and, and claim that that's something that exists. I haven't been able to verify that. I tried to see, okay, if that's a legit thing, I, can I find a video on YouTube of somebody doing this? I couldn't find that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Or one person spec- say that it, it works on smaller snakes. Well, if, if that's the case, that could explain why uh, you know, Aaron's was able to you know, eat the other ones. But either way, you know, Aaron was so you know, victorious. He was eating the, the, other, the other staves that had turned into snakes. But it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. Therefore, here come the nine plagues. And the first one, plague number one, turning the Nile River into blood. You think of how big the Nile River is. You know, if you've been to the Mississippi, this is you know, that category, if not bigger, of, of river. Uh, verse 14, Then the Lord 
said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he's going out in the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, and he tells him to take the staff, and he tells him to put it over all the waters, and that all the waters of Egypt, uh, even the canals and ponds and everything, would be turned into blood. And he goes ahead and he, he does this. And notice in verse 19 it says, uh, this happens to all the uh, waters of the Nile and all the tributaries. And notice it says, even the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. So even like their water supplies that they had set apart before, their, their saved up water turns into blood as well. I was wondering, does it mean it really turned into blood? Does it mean that it looked like blood? And from what I'm able to discern from people that know Hebrew much better than I do, that there's ways that uh, Moses could have written this if he only intended to say that it looked like blood. That the way it's written comes across that it, it turned into blood. And it has this effect. It says that uh, all the water in the Nile turned to blood. Verse 21, and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. Can you imagine the smell? So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood all throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So again, you have this huge sign, and then the magicians come along, well, we can do the same thing too. And somehow, whether it's some kind of sleight of hand or some kind of, you know, they have some kind of pots with you know, chambers. I don't, I, who knows how they did it? But they rode the fool you know, Pharaoh, that, hey, we can turn water into blood as well. And so Pharaoh thinks, I'm not going to repent for this. My guys can do this as well, too. Of course, notice they, they could uh, do this with, with small amounts, but they couldn't do what was really needed. They couldn't turn it back. They couldn't take the, the blood and turn it back into water. That's what would have really been helpful. They could continue to make things worse. It's like, oh, yeah, we don't need any more water turned into blood. Uh, how will turn it back? But that, they couldn't do that. But it was enough to harden <coughs> Pharaoh's heart. And it says, and the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water. There was still like underground water they could get to and drink. And this lasted for seven days. So there you have the first plague. And at the end it says that Pharaoh's <coughs> heart was, was still hard. So the second plague, frogs. It says here, we'll read number chapter 8. says, The Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, the plague I will send, I will plague your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house. I love how specific it gets. And into your bedrooms and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens, and in your kneading bowls. Imagine just you go home and you can't even get the frogs out of the oven. You can't get them out of the microwave. They're in the pots. They're, they're everywhere. You scoop some out and others are jumping in. You can't even make something. The frogs shall come up on you and on, 
uh, your people and all your servants. You may think, frogs? Frogs aren't that bad. There's a lot of frogs. And we're going to see these keep getting worse, too, each plague that goes by. <clears throat> so the Lord tells Aaron to stretch out his, has Moses tell Aaron to stretch out his hand with the staff over the rivers. And, and this comes to pass. And the frogs came and they covered the land of Egypt. Then in verse 7, it says the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And then you see Pharaoh, he, he's, he pleads with Moses, hey, take these frogs away. We, please make this stop. And he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He says, I'll, I'll let you go. But Moses said, Basically, it says, be pleased to, to command me, to, to get ready to command them to leave when I am to plead for you and for your servants and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and from the Nile. And he says, basically, he says, tomorrow we'll, we'll make that happen. We'll make the frogs go away. Moses pleads with the Lord and the, the frogs, uh, they leave or they, they die. And notice what it says in... Uh, Verse 13, it says, And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and the field. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. And just all through the land, they had gather up all the dead frogs and just uh, you know, mounds and mounds of stinking, decaying frogs. That was a lovely thought. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Those frogs. It goes on, now it's gnats. Gnats everywhere. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his staff with his hand and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats didn't you love gnats? Little tiny things just all over. And would you love a giant plague of those just in your face and your eyes and crawling in your ears? Just, I'm seeing people shake their heads like, it's not fun. Uh, and there were gnats everywhere, man and beast, and all the dust of the earth became gnats. There's a lot of dust in Egypt, by the way. Uh, became gnats in the land of Egypt. And here, this one is different. Verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognized something different is going on here. We can't, we can't replicate this. We can't do this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I think there's kind of one brief lesson we can take from this. You have the magicians here, and whether it's through demonic means, whether it's through illusion or trickery, you know, they were able to reproduce some of these miraculous events, but, but not all of them. But this should be something that makes us aware of one fact, and that is that a lesson that there is such a thing as counterfeit miracles. There was back then, and there is today as well. There can be things that seem like supernatural occurrences that are are not really of God. And things that many people can be fooled by. 
I mean, these uh, magicians in the court of Pharaoh, they were, they were good at what they did. And whatever means that they used, uh, they were very effective in def- making people believe that they had this power and this ability. And there's things that still go on in the world today. I read a true account of um, a, a tribe in Africa that had a witch doctor. It's kind of more modern days, but they were still controlled by this witch doctor. And one time he came and he gathered all of the village together and he uh, told them, and he's, he's dressed in his grass skirt and beads, and he tells them very angrily, you know, that there was somebody who was, who was guilty and there was going to be a curse upon the village because of this person's guilt. And then he called the person forward, the guilty person. He took out a rifle, shoots the man in the chest. Blood sprays. The man goes down. He's dead. They take the man, they put him in a, in a coffin, they bury him, and then three days later, the witch doctor says, you know, the, the gods have been appeased, and the dead man, he can now come back. And so they, they dug him up, and they found him in there, and he was, and he was alive, and came and crawled out of this, this coffin. There's a book I read a number of years ago, um, by a man named Andre, Andre Cole. I've never, any of you have heard of him? He was a, a, still alive, but he doesn't um, tour anymore. But he was a, a Christian ma- magician. Uh, he didn't claim to use magic, but he was an illusionist, like David Copperfield. And uh, he would do evangelistic things. I actually saw him. He was very, very good. But he has a book called Mind Games. If you ever want an interesting read, pick that up. Because he points out that you know, so many people are fooled by these type of things, even investigators and sometimes even pastors and theologians. Uh, but he said, who is kind of in the best place to bust some of these people? You know, it would be somebody that is, you know, a professional illusionist. And the whole book is kind of debunking some of these stories and his investigations into the paranormal and uh, psychics and even Christ- supposed Christians that claim some of these things. In his investigation, he discovered that the witch doctor had prearranged this with the victim. The victim had put a balloon full of pig's blood under his shirt. When he fired a blank at him, he burst the balloon and fell down, pretended to be dead. They put him in the coffin, and he slipped out through a trap door. They buried an empty box. Three days later, they dig it up. He slips back in through the trap door, and the whole tribe is led to believe that this witch doctor has these amazing powers. So there's things that they go on today. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 talks about counterfeit miracles that Satan is behind, whether it's through supernatural powers or a lot of it is just con artists that I think Satan uses to pull people away from the truth. And you know what? A lot of, some, a lot of this gets passed off as Christianity. Some of these TV preachers with the big ministries and TV shows and they fly around in their, uh, their, their jets and live in gigantic mansions and claim all these things, con artists. I mean, not even born again. We need to be a healthy skepticism towards some of these things that are counterfeit miracles. We believe in miracles. God can do them. But there's a lot of counterfeit miracles too, and this should make us aware of that. So moving on. Plague number four is, is Flies. Let me read just a few verses here. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh, 
basically says the same thing. He says, If he does not let the people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. Verse 22, this is, this is new, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the houses of Pharaoh and his servants' house throughout the land of Egypt. It was ruined by the flies, but there were none with, it says, with uh, God's people in that land. God put a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. And it goes on and says Moses tried to get Moses to, uh, he said, why don't you sacrifice within the land? You don't have to go. And Moses didn't accept that. Moses then asked eventually for the flies to be removed and they left, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, it says again. Let me pause here for another thing. When, this past week we were reading through this as a family, uh, going through the different plagues, and uh, my son Eric at this point asked, why is it that there's one, it's a plague of um, gnats and then a plague of flies. Those kind of seem like the same thing. Why have two that seem like they're basically the same thing? Which, by the way, the flies, the, the, the word is basically swarms, and it could refer to any type of swarming you know, insects, not necessarily just flies, but still, it kind of seems like the same thing. And said, actually, I think there's a, actually a pretty good explanation for that as far as what God is doing here. Because one thing that would have been more obvious to the Egyptians than to us is what God was doing is he was showing his dominance over the false gods of Egypt. Let me show you something. There were, Egypt had all these different gods. For example, there was Hapti, the god of the Nile. So they had a god for the Nile River. Okay, first plague, turning the Nile River into blood. They had another god, Hedek, the goddess of fertility, who had this goddess, uh, had the, I was pictured with the head of a frog. Okay, and you can go through the list and realize that what God is doing in these plagues is he is showing his superiority over these false gods. Uh, Some of these are a little more uncertain as far as who they are. Uh, There was the god Geb, the god of the earth. That's him on on the ground. He's often pictured with the goddess Nut, kind of arched over him like the sky. But remember with the gnats, it said he struck the dust of the ground and it became the, the gnats. So that could be a reference to, you know, attacking Geb. And uh, there was another god, Kefri, who had like the head of a, like a beetle, okay? And maybe that's kind of connected with the, the swarming things. Some of these are a little bit uncertain. Some are more certain. But it seems like this is part of what God is doing, is he's saying to the Egyptians, you have all these gods, but I'm going to show you that there is no god like the true god, that you are, you are inferior, you, you don't even exist. There might be demons behind you, but... You, you cannot contend. There's none like me in all the earth. That's one of the purpose statements that, that God said of what he is doing. And he's showing this all the way down to you get to the, 
Ra and with the, with the, the sun god, and God makes uh, darkness as uh, the, the last of the, the nine plagues. Remember in Exodus 8 9, he says, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The Lord. God was revealing himself as, as Yahweh, the great I am. So it's like he's going around to all these false gods saying, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, better than you. I am the great I am. You, you are, you ain't. That's the message we get out of this is that the Lord is sovereign over the gods of Egypt. And he is, he is sovereign over any false gods that we have today. And people have their false gods. They may not have heads of frogs, but people worship all kinds of false things today too. Let's see, I have plague number five, the livestock die. There was a false god that was a, that was a bull. Um, Apis, the sacred bull, maybe this is a reference to that. But um, verse 9, 1 through, through 7, we have to summarize here. He tells them if, they, uh, if Pharaoh, if he doesn't let the people go, that a severe plague will come across all the livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the, the flocks. But he'll put a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that none that belong to the people of Israel shall die. And he says, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to do this. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptian died. At least the ones that were in the field. It, it, there could be a hint there that the ones that were in stables might have been spared. But this would have really hit them where it hurt. This would have been a tough thing to lose all of those. These plagues are getting more and more severe. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. You know, some propose that there are naturalistic explanations for the plagues. That you could maybe explain these through things that happened naturally. And one theory is that maybe there was like some kind of mudslide, you know, in the, in the Nile River. And it put all this red mud into the, uh, into the Nile and made it look uh, red. Maybe it contaminated the river. Maybe there's bacteria too. And so the fish die, and, and that explains it being turned to blood. You know, it's, uh, it's polluted now, so the frogs jump out, and they're on the shore, so they're bothering everyone. And then later on, when the frogs die, they put them in heaps, and they start rotting, and they turn into gnats, and they turn into flies. And see, there you go. It's just, it's all, you can explain it naturally. Now, it could be that sometimes God uses some things in nature. I mean, he was using some frogs. He was using some of these things. But there, you can't just explain this all away as uh, some naturalistic thing. First of all, that'd be quite the coincidence. But some of this, you know, for, if it was the Nile that got polluted, that doesn't explain the water in the jars and the tanks also turning into blood. And also, after this one with the livestock dying, they say, well, maybe, you know, there was an anthrax outbreak because of the flies and all this. But it, it just doesn't work after this at all. And also, a naturalistic explanation, it can't explain the exactness of timing. Notice, Moses is a prophet, he's saying, at this time tomorrow, this is going to happen. And it happens on cue. If this was just a coincidence, it, you can't predict that unless God is behind this. 
And also it can explain the protection of the Hebrews. That it was like every one of the Egyptians and none of the Hebrews. So naturalistic, purely naturalistic explanations of this don't work. And you can find TV specials that talk about this. I've seen some too, but it's interesting, but God has to be behind this. We'll just summarize number six, boils. So boils breaking out, just uh, all over everyone of the Egyptians' bodies, itching, pussing. It's nasty. It says that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of their boils. And this one in verse 12, it says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. Verse 7 is, or the seventh one is hail. I wish we had more time to, to read through this. We'll read a little because I think there's some important stuff. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourselves before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go, they may serve me. For this time I will send, pl- I will send all my plagues on you yourself. You know, this is number seven. This is, we're getting really serious here. And on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from all the earth. Notice what he says in 15. He says, you realize, I, I could have easily just wiped you out by now. We're getting serious. We're, we're getting your attention, really. But you realize that it could be even worse already. I could have wiped you out a long time ago. Be merciful right now, giving you a chance to repent. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. Why? To show you my power. Why? So that, the, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And he tells him to get, you better, warning, I'm telling you this, so get your livestock in if you don't want them to be smashed with these gigantic hailstones. Who knows how big these were? You know, softball, bowling ball, I don't know. And the people that got to cover, their, their livestock was, was spared. God tells Moses to do this, and it says it just rains down. It says, verse 23, thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. So not only is there gigantic hail bashing everything, but there's fire in the midst of it. And it says, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt, and there, there was hail and fire flashing continuously, continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such has never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So these hailstones are falling, and there's someone like fire flashing between them as they're falling. Can you imagine how terrifying and awful this, this would have been? In verse 25, it says, They were big enough to, to shatter trees, that all the trees of Egypt were shattered. You know, Egypt probably doesn't get much hail. I checked online to see, and a news article said, December 13th, 2013, they had snow in Cairo for the first time in 112 years. Verse 27, 
Well, we have to, we have to look at this. It says, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, This time I have sinned. Oh, good, Pharaoh's repenting, right? The Lord is in the right, and I'm, my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And he withdraws the hail. And then at the end it says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and his heart was hardened, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. There's a lesson for us here. That like Pharaoh, you know, people, we, we can often seem very repentant. Seem we're very sorry until the consequences are taken away. And then it's right back to it. People, God, I'll never do this again. If you just remove this consequence, I will, I will turn my life around. I will do this. And then God bails you out. God shows mercy. And then what do our sinful hearts do? We're right back at it. Because we didn't care about the Lord the sinful man doesn't care about the Lord. The sinful man just cares about the consequences. But if you're a real Christian, if God is changing your heart, your main concern is not the consequences, it's the fear of the Lord, that you, you love him, you, you want to obey from the heart. It's the difference between false repentance and true repentance. Two more plagues, the locusts. We just have time to summarize these. But in the first two verses, it says again, we've looked at this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what sign I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And in verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart after the locusts and the usual things that happened. And he did not let the people of Israel go. And here we see, it keeps talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart kept getting more and more hard. And we see different phases. First, it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. It says later, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there's also passages at the end, especially, where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And a lot of times we struggle with this. What is going on here? God is, is hardening his heart? And sometimes we maybe try to explain this away too much. That, well, uh, Pharaoh was hardening his own heart, so that's just what was going on. But God predicted this. He said this is what was going to happen from the beginning. I think a few things to realize. God did not take... Pharaoh's good heart. If, when we think of God hardening his heart, he did not take Pharaoh who had this actually a wonderful heart and he was going to do the right thing and God made him evil instead. That's not what happened. Pharaoh's heart was already evil. And Pharaoh was already doing a plenty good job of letting his own heart become hardened. So in this, God never overrode Pharaoh's responsibility but there was a concurrence between God's decree and Pharaoh's will. 
that somehow even through this, God is, is sovereign. Yes, it's true that sinful choices do harden our hearts. The more that we're in a sin, the more our heart gets calcified, and it's hard to pull away from things. We just get, we get hardened. Notice this text doesn't tell us how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, was, it, did he, was he working directly on Pharaoh's heart? Was it the circumstances that God put into place that were, was causing Pharaoh's heart to be hard? Was it a combination? Well, however you answer this, ultimately, though, the lesson is that God is sovereign, even over the heart of mighty Pharaoh. And God is going to use Pharaoh for his glory. He raised him up for this purpose. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the land, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Romans 9.14-23 talks about this as well. And then finally, there is there's darkness. Which may seem, well, this, why is that such a big deal? You know, their main god that they had was Ra, the god of the sun. I think this was definitely an attack against Ra. We'll read this. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That's interesting. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another. You ever been in a cave? This isn't the type of darkness where you get used to it after a while, where it's just kind of dark. This is you can't see anything. You don't leave your house because you can't see anything. I don't think a sandstorm or anything explains this. This was some kind of supernatural pitch blackness in Egypt. Not where the Hebrews were, but where the Egyptians were. Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go to the Lord. And he tries to negotiate saying, you know, Okay, leave, uh, but leave your animals here. And Moses is saying, No, it's, you're going to let us go. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I shall not see your face again. You know, all these plagues, one thing it should have us realize is that the Lord's judgment is real. You know, sometimes we tend to like to think that, you know, God is just a God, just of love and mercy, and he's so kind and easygoing that he would never judge anyone. Scripture shows us that God's judgment is real. But through this, we also see the mercy of God. You know how many times Pharaoh had that, that he could have repented. God didn't just wipe them out right away. And the same way with us. You know, we're sinners. The wage of sin is death. God could just, we sin, boom, you're, you're gone. But instead, you are here. You are alive. You are breathing. And until you breathe your last... You have the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ, to turn to him, to accept salvation through what Jesus Christ has done freely for you. But the time will come to an end. It doesn't last forever. Lift up God in your heart. Turn to Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. You are an awesome, an awesome God. There is none like you in all the earth. We confess that. We glorify you from our hearts, Lord. Forgive us for any time that we have gone after false gods, things that we put in your place, that we have thought lightly of the judgment of the Lord. Instead, let us flee to the one that has taken judgment upon himself on the cross in our place, 
that we may find forgiveness through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.